On this episode of our award-winning podcast, we'll continue our discussion about sudden cardiac death and how AI can help identify those patients who are at risk. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal of Operations and Quality at Vizient and Practicing Internist. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Alan Chan and Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Alan, Sanjay, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks for having us. Gentlemen, can we use digital health to affect those people who are the most vulnerable, particularly addressing issues of social determinants of health? I think we can. One of the things that's been interesting, even my patients from disadvantaged medical backgrounds, a lot of them have a cell phone and a cell phone is a very powerful device. And it's amazing that a lot of them can say they have trouble making it to their appointments. They have trouble affording medications, but they have a cell phone and they can get a medical device for that. They can take an EKG or they can record vitals and they can send that information to me and they can participate remotely in care and still be engaged in a way that previously they could not without a device. So I think leveraging the tool that's in their pocket to do more and more more questionnaires, intelligent decision-making support there as well, I think is really going to help us bridge that gap. Yeah, Tom, I think it's a really good question because I think to Sanjay's point, the fundamental sort of point of access really is to have that phone. Mm -hmm. In many of the especially emerging areas of the world or places where they're not as financially advantaged, that does become a stumbling block. But, you know, one of the things that we're seeing just across the board is just that barrier coming down, access to phones, access to technology, whether it be through phones or even just computer interfaces or whatnot, is becoming a lot easier. And I think as providers of care, as device manufacturers and whatnot, I think the onus is on us to try to make it even easier. Once they have that technological ability to get online, for example, we need to make those interfaces to be comprehensible and accessible to the entire population. The treatment of patients with heart failure is becoming more difficult, if you will. It's becoming more and more subspecialized medications. Even who would have dreamt that an anti-diabetic medication would actually save lives for patients with heart failure? Is there an opportunity to use AI here in this particular platform? Is there an opportunity to use AI for this particular disease state? I think so. What I worry about is that in the process of trying to achieve the best possible outcome, people, we've overloaded them with a regimen that's very difficult to follow. And so I think what would be interesting is to have the pendulum swing the other way a little bit and say, gosh, maybe we can realize that there is, for someone who's not taking the medicines or who can't afford all these, that maybe there would be a subset of these medicines that would be more important to take than others. And I think that would help us maybe serve those with the greatest need with the most powerful tools. I think it's hard. I mean, I have trouble keeping track of all the medicines. My patients strong. I don't know how they do it, to be honest. You could spend all day just taking medicines. Right. There's got to be a happy medium in there somewhere where we find out, okay, this regimen is associated with the highest degree of compliance and success. We're prescribing the medicines. We don't know that they're actually taking them. And so I think trying to find what the real world applicability of that is and what people are actually taking, I think is the next hurdle to be crossed. Yeah. I think, Tom, to your point, I think the short answer is yes. One of the things that we've certainly learned more and more about over time is, is that the more data you have, the better your AI is. Right. One of the things that's really, really remarkable is just the adoption of these wearable devices that people are using, whether it be a watch or a little Fitbit device or what have you. And just the amount of data that's being collected on a day-to-day, even minute-by-minute basis is going to really enrich those neural networks for AI to be that much more effective. And from the standpoint of all the comments that Sanjay made about medication compliance and the like, there's an element of AI that can actually certainly help with triaging patients. For example, someone who just came out of the hospital from decompensated heart failure, what is that individual's risk for rehospitalization or readmission in the next 30 to 60 days? There are actually pretty robust algorithms out there in various specific populations that are proven to be very, very helpful to triage those individuals who you need to really identify or spend more time focused on versus others who perhaps can go on their own and continue their medications as an outpatient. 
I can certainly see the advantage for that in reference to many of the value-based contracting occurring right now, whether it be Medicare Advantage or your base APMs as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your selection process for these devices? I mean, how do you choose the right patient for the right device? You know, I think a lot of times you have to look at what the outcome is or what's the measure that you're trying to get. And so a lot of times if I just want an EKG, there's lots of devices for that. Where they differ is with the diagnoses that they can provide. So some of them will only say AFib or not, whereas others can provide more diagnoses from there too. If I'm just following somebody for AFib, then I just need a device that can tell them whether they're an AFib or not. But if someone is looking just for more broad spectrum, look for palpitations, I want a device that will provide more flavor there too. What else do they want to do with it? Do they want to also track blood pressures and heart rate? And again, you have to look at your sophistication of your patient, an older patient who can barely just send a text message to their grandkids. You want to get something that's really simple. Giving them some really complex device is just not going to work. And so I think you have to look at those things too. This is a different situation where before we always had control. We would prescribe medications and things to patients. They couldn't just get them on their own. Now the patients, they just show up with these devices in my office and they're already using them and maybe they're not using them right. Right. And so now we're in a different situation where we're trying after the fact to try to advise them, well, maybe this is what you should consider using or try using this instead. And that's the challenge. Many of our institutions are struggling financially. Margins are only getting worse. Resources are actually very complex or difficult to get. What's the ROI? How can I convince my CFO to make the investment on these devices? So I think the biggest trend I've seen in healthcare in the last five, 10 years is that more and more care is being shifted to the home. We just started a hospital in your home program at our institution. The last two years have told us that you can actually give pretty good healthcare virtually, but what we're not having, what don't I have in the home? I don't have a stethoscope. I don't have a blood pressure cuff. I don't have an EKG machine. So I need the ability to do those things to bridge that gap, to give me the actual information that I need. And if I have that for a lot of patients, not for all of them, I'll be honest with you, there are some conditions that you should not treat virtually, but there are some that you can. And if you can do that and you can get reliable information, which you can preserve your resources so that instead of having a checkup where we have healthy people come to the hospital or come to clinic to make sure they're okay, we can use information to say, you people who have good information are sending us, you're okay. You don't need to come in. Your reward for being healthy is you don't have to come into the office. Those people who are sending us information that was more concerning, we need you to come in because we're worried about you. And so you preserve access for your most sick patients and you don't use up access for patients who are otherwise doing well and don't need to be seen yet, but you can still be engaged with them and not lose their connection to your practice. So that's going to change when you think about clinical practice, but it's going to change it for the better. And I think we'll be able to use our resources a lot more effectively and take care of the sickest of the sick patients, which is the most important thing. Yeah, maybe just to add to that, Tom, when you're thinking about ROI for these devices, there's two sort of considerations that go in my head. Okay. One is on a very practical level is one of the things to appreciate is that many of these devices provide that ROI over time and it's not immediate. And so when people start thinking about when am I going to get my ROI, it's helpful to sort of define some realistic sort of bounds in terms of timeline. I think on a practical level, and many of the hospital programs, not all of them certainly, have these cost center situations that are very siloed. Right. For example, when you purchase a device for implantation, that's a cost center that perhaps the hospital owns. Right. But then the revenue that you generate from the checkups in the future or whatnot, or the avoidance of hospitalizations goes to someone else's cost center. And so the revenue is realized in different cost centers, and there needs to be some alignment on the hospital administration perspective to be able to say this whole service line is benefiting from these investments. I think the other piece of this also is that if you think about these devices, and Sanjay made this point earlier, is that some of these are very, very sophisticated devices. They're 
collecting a ton of information, in some cases confusing to the patient to use. So that interface has to be simplified, if you will. The other thing about this is these devices need to really move away from just simply providing data, but providing contextual information that's actionable. And then when you get to that point, then this is actually going to be very, very useful to individuals and to patients and the physicians alike. And so it's really providing that right context. I'll just give you an example. You know, if someone has AFib and they have an AFib in isolation, you might think about changing antiarrhythmics or doing this or doing that. Absolutely. But if they're having AFib in the setting of an episode of decompensated heart failure that the device could pick up, well, that might change your approach to how you would manage that individual. Right. So that context, I think, is very critical. And I think we're getting there because many of these devices provide multiple different types of sensors, if you will. And hopefully we'll get to a point where it actually is very actionable. I can definitely see that. Excellent. Excellent. Alan Sanjay, thanks for the discussion. And to our listeners, you can contact Dr. Chang or Dr. Gupta at their email addresses in the research section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email at modernpracticepodcast at vizientinc.com. We've posted a link in our research section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thanks for listening.